Hello and welcome to episode eight of the Riptide Lab podcast. We are rejoined by Dom Harvey and we are taking a second and hopefully final look at Modern Horizons 2 as a review episode. And uh, Dom, we got some feedback uh, in, in the form of Reddit comments. Oh no. Not a lot of them, but they're... They're directed towards you, mostly. Um, oh, one person said, Every episode with Dom is an absolute gem. The two of you make for the best cube discourse around. What a set, too. And the second comment was a bit shorter. It just said, Stand Dom. Oh, love to see it. See, th th this is the thing. Uh, Reddit is a hive of scum and villainy and a toxic place that uh, drags down the magic discourse Except when they're praising me, at which point they are, you know, calm and wise and enlightened and uh, really should be considered with more authority. So love to see that. Um, but yeah, I, since the part one of this, we've had the rest of the spoiler drops. So th there's always this weird uh, pacing to preview season where I remember with the first Modern Horizons, you think back to that and you think, okay, Hogak, Astrolabe, you know, all the stuff that really pushed the envelope way too far. Mm. And depending on when those get released during spoiler season, that I think that can really warp people's perceptions of the set. So it's funny if you go to Reddit and look over the comment thread when Hogak was spoiled, there's half of it basically is, oh, this is a weird and wacky card. That's, that's kind of a cool design. And then the other half is, well, this is a lot of work. I don't think this is actually good in the existing dredge deck or whatever. Uh, and little did we know uh, what was about to uh, hit modern at that point. But I wonder how that is different if that is the first card that they show as an example of what to expect in the set versus something that just gets dropped with a dozen other cards on the final day of preview season. And so I, I try to keep that in mind. Uh, during any spoiler season it's difficult though when like I, I write a weekly column about magic and so i have to kind of be time sensitive to what's getting spoiled and uh working mm. to a deadline and, and so on and so you know I, I can write about a card and think that i'm doing a uh, think that i'm giving a fairly exhaustive treatment and then by the time i've filed that article the next day some new card drops down the pipe and completely changes the entire context so um you know, but like I said uh, before, I, I always have a few cube ideas on the back burner, just kind of whirring away passively in my head. And I just mm -hmm. had to like ma manually shut all of those down until the full spoiler was dropped because like, I know there's going to be something hidden in there that's going to uh, make me reevaluate everything. So we have that all now and we can get down to business. So uh, let's do it. Yeah. Um, so I was listening to uh, Lucky Paper Radio, which is a brilliant uh other podcasts i don't want to say rival podcast yeah. because i am uh quite a fan of everything they're doing there and uh they helped me kind of set up the distribution for our podcast and we are now on apple podcasts but uh anthony maddox uh, one of the people from lucky paper said that he needs to add our podcast to his chores queue now i I feel like he could have been a bit more diplomatic with his wording there. <laughs> I don't know if that is intentional ambiguity. Are we the chore? Are we the release from the chores? Are we what helps him get through the day as he's uh, getting the mop out or whatever? I don't know. But uh, ho hopefully uh, this episode will be to his liking at least. 
Well, it could be that he's trying to do some field research because I am, uh, if all goes as plans, uh, recording with him on Sunday. And so maybe he doesn't want to go in blind to our podcast environment. One of the topics that they covered in their podcast was the idea that a pushed one drop is more palatable to run than a pushed, say, three or four drop. And it was framed in such a way that I never really thought about before. Like, if I look back, I'm not sure that there have ever been any one-drop creatures that I've deemed too strong for my cube environment. But there's certainly a number further up the curve that I've taken out. Yeah, I think when you look at the, the mana system and how that tends to work and how that intersects with just modern approaches to design... Certainly during that era in 2019, 2020, when cards were super, super pushed, um, there is still a cap on how good any given one drop can be. And if you look at, uh, let's say, Legacy and Vintage or some of these cubes, like the Function cubes that really push this uh, approach to the extreme, where the absolute priority is keeping the curve down, uh, maximizing the uh, the branches, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, the, the branches on the tree on any given turn then even in there like i don't know what a one drop would have to look like in order to be too powerful and some of the one drops that have been most warping in older formats so like delver of secrets for example mm -hmm. um, even then they require this hyper specific context where yeah if you have your brainstorm ponder preordain you, you can make sure you have uh over half of your deck is is uh, instance or sorceries. At that point, yeah, you you get this fully juiced up one drop. But even then, like let, let's say Delva was just a three two five three two five for blue, and it didn't really care where you put it. I don't think that card itself would be super busted in Legacy. The issue is all the stuff that surrounds it, which makes it so that you can defend that card very easily, or it's in the same color as all of the best interaction and card draw and card filtering and and so on. Mm -hmm. um, whereas when you get up to the three mana mark, you're going to get stuff like Oko, or in any other year, maybe you don't get exactly Oko, but you get these uh, cards with a much higher ceiling. Um, and that arms race where, you know, any three drop has to pass the, the terminate test or the vindicate test or whatever you like to call it. Uh, and it needs to have some immediate impact and, uh, and so on and so forth, then, yeah, you're going to get these three drops that just do everything under the sun and have good stats, and if you don't answer it, you're going to lose on the spot. It is just really hard to get that with a one drop that they could feasibly print, even in a set like this or a set like one of the Commander products that is explicitly designed to, to push the envelope there. Yeah, I do think that... Um, from what I've read from some people who have, you know, done the printer method of testing this card, that uh, if you do get it on turn one, especially on the play, and you start connecting with it, that, you know, Lotus Petal is a very strong card, and the earlier in the game you have it, the more you're kind of breaking the mana system relative to your opponent, and... It's probably very difficult to recover from one or two hits of this thing if you stumble at all on your early curve. Well, let's say, all right, your opponent plays Ragavan, you play land and pass. They attack you, they get the triggers, uh, 
and maybe they don't get to do anything immediately with that. So they didn't steal your two drop and now they get to pay your two drop. Mm-hmm. Um, so they they play something else and they pass. You play a land, you Doomblade their Ragavan and deliberately choosing a, uh, a, a removal spell that's trading down on mana here. Um, so yeah, that, that exchange is bad for you for sure. And they have a Lotus Petal and maybe now they get to untap, cast a, a four drop on turn three or whatever. Um, it, it definitely can get out of control. But the fact that it's these lotus petals, as you call them, these treasure tokens, um, that puts a cap on how out of control any of that stuff can get. Like, if, if you think about why in a lot of Power Max cubes or Vintage cubes, you look at the green section and it's eight different varieties of Birds of Paradise, Lanoir Elves, Noble Hierarch, Ignoble Hierarch now, uh, and so on, it's because that continuous effect over every spot on your curve is so powerful um, that that's worth the downsides of you draw this late in the game and it doesn't do anything, or you're playing a somewhat fragile card, or you, you have more risk of flooding, whatever it is. Um, and that's why in some of my designs, I explicitly move towards Gilded Goose instead of these other one drops because mm-hmm. Gilded Goose has so much more going for it. That second point of toughness is really big, uh, the food token, and then the ability to have this mana sink that gets you more food tokens over time, even if there's no synergy that you're leading into with that, um, that that card is just so much more effective at any given point in the game than the other one-drops are. And yet, you still see people saying, this doesn't cut it for my list. I want the third Finhorn Elves uh, equivalent in there instead, because having that effect spread out over time is just that much more powerful. And, and this is the same reason why I think uh, Markson are kind of out of place, even in a vintage cube, where either give everyone a full set of Markson to the point where you expect that to be a reliable part of both player starts in every game. And I think that's actually a really interesting design space to look into at some point. Mm-hmm. Or just cut that out of it entirely. What you don't want to do is get into the situation where one player has a Marks and now their entire curve is shifted down like one to the left um and they're always playing ahead of schedule and so with ragaban i think it does lead to interesting decisions over how valuable is this resource how useful is the treasure um and yeah sometimes this snowballs very quickly out of control but also sometimes your one drop just blanks the ragaban it can't attack into it anymore and Mm -hmm. we've we've mentioned how when so many cards do something when they enter the battlefield or so many cards just create extra tokens or uh, there was a period in standard design where every creature had kind of more toughness and power or all of the relevant ones. So you would have these uh, collected company decks with Sylvan Advocate, Reflector Mage, uh, so on and so forth. And it is so hard for just a a one drop that's a two one to thrive in those environments because they get obsoleted so quickly. and um, you know, uh, I think it's at the point now where you have to do the work to connect with us a lot of the time. And mm-hmm. if that's the case, I think this is the right kind of reward to get back for that. So, um, yeah, th- this is the best one drop of, of all time in that sense. Um, but I think it's still okay. I, I think even whether you are a lower power cube, higher power cube, I think this is still a fine card. Also, sometimes you play a, a two one and they play an O3 that's also drawing them a card. And, uh, you know, you, you get to uh, uh, 
you get that satisfaction there as well. Yeah. So if you're listening, I just scrolled to Hard Evidence, which is a blue one mana sorcery that creates an O3 crab and investigates. So this draws obvious comparisons to Thraben Inspector. And and one of the things I wrote on the forums today is that I, I think this clue in theory should be more effective in a blue shell than a white shell, simply from the dynamic that you can hold up a mana leak or whatever counter spell you want. And if they don't play anything worth countering, you have the clue as kind of the backup mana sync for you to use on their end step. Yeah, I, I love this card. The It might be the home run of the set for me um, in terms of like, some cards are more flashy, some cards are more powerful, but this is the card which whenever I'm designing a new cube now, this and the Raven Inspector just get locked in and then the other however many cards uh, fill it out from there. And this, I think, has a lot of upside over Thraven Inspector in a blue deck, where, as you say, it's easier to play a reactive game with this versus a more conventional, maybe sorcery speed card draw spell. And then the O3 as opposed to a 1-2 is a much better defensive body, so that lets you play a more reactive game. Or even in a deck that's trying to be a tempo uh, deck in, in blue, what we've seen in, in the past in Limited often is you would have, let's say, a blue-white deck where you have a bunch of flyers and you're trying to race in the air, but your flyers typically have worse stats because flying is such a good ability that you need to sacrifice something to unlock that power. And so let's say I play a, a Windrake, a 2-2 flyer, they play just random green 3-3-3-3, three, 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 three. that green thing is going to beat me in a race. So it's good to have these big defensive bodies in, even in your uh, kind of tempo skies deck uh, so that you can clog up the ground and then swing over in the air. And that doesn't translate that well to cube once the power gets to a certain level, but uh, worth keeping in mind. And then you just have all of the, the nuts and bolts interactions with this card. So this goes to your graveyard right away. So you can delve it. You can flash it back with Snapcaster Mage if you just want an early play to develop your board. Um, increasingly, blue decks, even if they're not trying, have things that care about instants and sorceries. So you're, you're scrolling over Merktide region, for example. This, uh, this is the, the Delve Dragon that I actually previewed for SEG, um, mm -hmm. where you, know, it, you delve it, and then it gets a plus one, plus one counter for each instant or sorcery that you delved uh, in there. And this is a one mana sorcery. The ghost of your graveyard can be delved away. And so it, it just kind of ties the room together really neatly. And then if you do care about artifacts or tokens or whatever it is, it's it's kind of hard to not have your deck care about some part of this card in, in a way that goes beyond just the uh, what it says on the tip. Yeah. I'll, I'll admit to being guilty of not having read your preview yet. Um, but historically, I, I feel like Delve creatures have been... Uh, some of the strongest ones that they've printed. And certainly with Hogak last year, we can see the power of it. And this certainly, in my opinion, um, compares favorably to Tombstalker, uh, both by being cheaper and possibly being much bigger on the board. I, I don't imagine that this will often hit the table as something smaller than a 5-5. 
Yeah, I think if you are choosing between this dragon and Ethereal Forager for the same slot in your cube, I think Forager is less likely to just run away with the game. So you don't get you don't die to the the soup dot tomb stalker as often. So it's less polarizing on that axis. And then also it's it makes you think about how do I get some good instance or sorceries in the yard to recur with the forager as opposed to tossing them into the void with the region and just attacking with my big dumb idiot. Um, so I think the forager is a more interesting card to build around and, and play with most of the time. Uh, but this is a really cool option to have access to as well. Do you feel like there's any um, color pie breaking here? I mean, it used to be that if blue would get like an aggressively statted creature, it came with some significant drawbacks. And here we're getting a 6-6, six, six, an 8-8 eight, eight flyer for two with an upside. It can grow larger once it's on the table. I think blue has always been one of the colors that gets to care about graveyards. And I don't know exactly what the color pie philosophy is in the original future site that gave us Tombstalker, where we had this uh, preview, this glimpse into the future. Um, and so is that meant to be the template for what we can expect? Or when we actually got that batch of Delve creatures, you know, eight years later with Tasker, Gomag Angler, and so on, um, you didn't really have blue ones at the time, but I think that was more a function of just the way they split that up in the color pie, where if uh, Delve is the soul time mechanic in your set, then maybe blue gets instants and sorceries with Delve and black gets uh, black and green get the big Delve creatures. Um, but I, I don't think this is uh, color pie breaking really at all. Yeah, I, I think this delve mechanic is one that um in my experience kind of scales with the power of your format and that like the more powerful of a format you have typically your graveyards tend to fill much quicker especially if you're um running multiple cycles of things like fetch lands and so i, I think this could hit the table quite early from my I've only played two cube games with Hogak, but both times it hit the table on turn four, uh, one time from the graveyard even. So I I think there's certainly plenty of tools, even in a mostly singleton cube, to get these things powered up quickly. Yeah, I think it does scale well with the speed of your format, where if everyone is taking this flurry of actions on the first few turns, then you could reliably get this out on turn three, turn four. If you have a slower format where you can cast normal four drops and five drops and so on, and the games are a bit more slow paced, at that point, you just don't have the material to turbo this out. But then it's more acceptable to wait until turn six or whatever to cast this, or maybe even later in the game, you cast this and another spell on the same turn. Uh, so I, I think it does what it needs to do to keep up whatever the uh, the speed of the of everything else is. Now, I have a non-magic story to share with you. Um, and, and I'm choosing you because I think you are uniquely positioned to appreciate it. Um, I was looking over the shoulder of my, my wife on her phone. You know, I just kind of glanced over at her from time to time. 
And recently, she's been frequently on Instagram looking at these pictures of this bare-chested Adonis type of character. And one of the things about uh, living in a foreign country is that it's changed kind of how I read strings of characters, because now I have the Dutch language in my brain and the kind of typical Belgian Flemish names. And so I saw these pictures wondering, is this someone that she used to date? Is this something I need to be concerned about? (laughs) I've been in a dad bod transformation since before we even had our child. And I found myself asking, who the fuck is Jan Glim? And I looked it up. Uh, it's not Jan Glim. It's Jay Englum. Oh, God. Joe Englum from uh, Survivor Worlds Apart and other seasons. Who uh, has really taken a hard turn over the past few years, where he's very big now into... He's in, like, this masculinity cult where uh, you, like, go through these really arduous things that break your body down in order to prove that you're uh, a proper, like night or whatever i it's and there's a whole lot of uh conspiracy theories uh, i think maybe some anti-vax stuff worked in there too so uh a good example of how you know even those of us who are blessed with uh good jaw lines and abs and so on can still uh fall down a dangerous rabbit hole for sure yeah i i haven't followed any of that i i just i looked up Jan glim on my phone and i found out this to my knowledge is not someone my wife has dated. Anyway, fascinating to hear how this ties into Garth One-Eyed. This is uh, going to be a segue for the ages. Yes, I I imagine this Garth has quite a six-pack beneath him. Actually, you you, uh, you may not like it, Jason, but this is what peak male performance looks like. It's, yes, uh, you, you kind of have to lean in and squint there, but yeah, you can you can make up some uh, you can make out some uh, some abs in there. I'm sure. I think this card, Garth One Eye, I'm not even going to, if you haven't heard of it, it's a five color, five drop that creates a bunch of random ass cards, card tokens, card copies. Uh, to me, this card is an illustration of the power of authority and that wizards can print this card and because they are a game design production authority, we all get a little excited and tingly. And if you saw this on our custom magic slash new, you would rightfully take a dump on it a little bit. Well, that was my first reaction, in fact, when I saw this card. And I I needed to have it explained to me that... uh, in terms of the original magic lore, uh, Garth was actually a very significant character. And if you go back to the the book called Magic Arena, all the way back in the day, uh, you know, Garth Garth was the protagonist there. And uh, you know the the point. I think I'm doing this for memory, so don't quote me here. But uh, I believe that he had he shows up to this like wizard tournament, and he'd mastered all. The, the magics that the five different colors had access to and uh, takes the whole tournament. Uh, by I've seen storm. that anime episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, and this is a, uh, a good uh, recreation of that. And so the reaction that I saw seemed to be split between 
what the hell is this card? Or, oh, I have that nostalgia from reading this book 25 years ago, and I am madly in love with this thing. And so knowing, knowing that, I can take a step back and think, okay, this one isn't for me, but this is targeted at a somewhat niche audience. And for them, this is, you know, everything they've dreamed of for a quarter of a century. So uh, we'll let them have that fun. Yeah, I do think it captures the imagination. Um, as far as a card that is very much for me, I am very excited about Prismatic Ending, and I I feel like this card hasn't gotten as much discussion as it should. To me, this is like a very, very powerful, flexible magic card that gets better the better your format is yeah it is a strong card i think if you are coming at it from a place of the decks in my cube typically are two colors more so than three if there is a third color that's usually a a light splash for something and you you have that concern about the fixing being too good or too easy and these four color five color piles coming together then yeah that's not a format that's conducive uh, to this card doing well uh, but if you have doubles of all the fetch lands and every deck has perfect mana and so on, then yeah, this is uh, fantastic. Yeah, it reminds me of a discussion that I saw about um, Tempted by the Auric, where uh, this is from Strixhaven. It's a sorcery that lets you steal a creature planeswalker of mana value three or less. And the cost is triple blue and a colorless. And what I what I saw people say is that if the threats in your environment are Oko and Uro, this is quite incredible. And if you power down just like a half step to where the threats are Jace and Siege Rhino, then this loses a lot of its luster. And uh, with Prismatic Ending, uh, I see this scaling well towards taking out those Oko Uros, taking out a Jitte if you need, taking out a Delver on turn one. Uh, and then this is never going to answer your opponent's Grave Titan if that's what's winning games in your format. I will say I am tempted by Tempted by the Arc. I think that is the best cube card probably from Strixhaven. And this is a this is just a fantastic card. Um, and it is somewhat flippant to say, yeah, if all of your good threats cost four mana, then this card gets worse because that's just what the card says. The text is right there. But yeah. even in those formats, the tempo swing of uh, I'll take your two drop, I'll take your three drop is still, and not have any of the counterplay that something like Syrup Temptation has, for example. That's still a very powerful thing to do. And in those lower formats, uh, being able to bridge the gap to your fives and your sixes and so on is is really impactful. Um, I played the Pioneer Cube on Magic Online uh, and did a short write-up about that. And that was actually a, a lot of fun, but it's it's what you think of as a lower power format. And Tempted by the Oric was incredible there. Mm. Um, I, playing for the 3-0, uh, the, the I had a game where I just let my opponent's Liliana, the last time, tick up to ultimate and then just yoinked it and uh, and had it go off. Um, I think the the warning sign in that game, which also speaks to the card's power, was my opponent had a tireless tracker that I just didn't do anything about because I didn't care for a while. Um, and then when they saw Tempted by the Auric, 
your first thought would be, well, I could also steal this fantastic creature that belongs in almost any cube, but I'm saving it for something else. And sure enough, that turned out to be um, this this game game winning uh, planeswalker ultimate. Uh, but it is tough to find a cube that doesn't have good uh, three mana, certainly creatures or, or less to steal. And mm-hmm. maybe planeswalker is not so much, but uh, you know, Grist is in Modern Horizons too. We have stuff like the uh, three mana Jaretti, uh, the two Lilianas at three mana. Uh, you know, if, if you're a boomer and you still like Jace Bellerin, then this one's in the mix too. There's just a lot of good stuff to steal. And it's, it's kind of hard to construct a format where this isn't good. And if that's the case, then that that is by itself a a good like elevator pitch for your format. It's, that, that tells your drafters everything they need to know. I... I guess I have a special place in my heart for Jace Bellerin because I won my first standard tournament uh, with a playset of him because I didn't have the money for the Mind Sculptors. But the the way that the Legend Planeswalker ruling worked back then meant that Bellerin would invalidate the Jaces on the other side of the table. And since then, they've changed it. So you wouldn't get that dynamic now. But I think the the discussion of three mana planeswalkers, I always find these just in terms of like when they hit the board to be so much more dangerous in terms of like if you look at Grist, like it can it can hit the board and start protecting itself right away and Sometimes this creates a pretty deep hole for your opponent to fight out of. Yeah, I've I've really soured in general on planeswalkers that plus to make tokens or plus to protect themselves in some meaningful way because even though theoretically you can still contain those through combat, it is just so tough to get them off the battlefield. And uh, if you wait for even a turn or two, then all right, great, you've you've killed the grist, you've you've redirected damage that could have gone upstairs so your opponent has functionally gained a bunch of life and now they still have a ton of stuff left behind i think they're okay with that trade you know most of the time yeah um, whereas the the more specialized planeswalkers or the ones where uh they can't defend themselves so you actually have to spend resources or make tough decisions on uh you know can i afford to chump block this uh this thing that would kill my planeswalker do i need to burn this removal spell that is at least more defensible, whereas Grist is uh, the template for how that can go wrong. Are you excited about this card from a cube context? Oh yeah, absolutely. But it's going to be... Either it's one of the best cards in your environment, or it isn't, and that's because people are doing ridiculous things like uh, tinkering into God knows what on turn three, or they're, you know... If this card is not one of the better cards in the format, then you you have even bigger problems at that point. Yeah, I feel like if I'm going to run it, I need to pick up one of the alternate arts because I find this main art just, like, very gross. Like, very... Yeah, it does the job, I guess. It's, it's, uh, It's good at it, but maybe too good. Yeah. The other... um. Three mana walker from the set. I think there's only two of them. Is Dakan. Um, this is a planeswalker. We're not going to say all of its abilities. So if you're listening, look it up on your phone. Um, I don't have a very big 
artifact emphasis in my cube. And I, I feel like a big part of this card is the fact that it can ultimate right away uh, the first turn that you play it. And so I, I feel like from a kind of design perspective, it's not really a fit for my environment in that sense. I think it ties into these debates around uh, what signals your card send, where even if you don't have that many artifacts, I th think the start, this card is still pretty good for the most part. Mm -hmm. But I think drafters will look at this and think, okay, there are a lot of artifacts here. Maybe there's a, an artifact subtheme in Esper that I can build around and then get disappointed where they slam this early and the, uh, I don't know, the, the mere battlesphere or something that they're hoping for just never comes down because there isn't one in the cube, so why would it? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it's, it's a sweet card, but just be mindful of what people are going to read into that. Yeah, I do think that I've I've quite liked the uh, play pattern, for example, of Nissa Steward of Elements, where mm. there is a choice about when to deploy it to the table, and sometimes it's best to just play it on three and start upping it. Sometimes you hold it until you can get the ultimate on the turn that you play it to kind of like push through some unexpected burst damage for a green-blue deck. And so I, I think from that perspective um this has some interesting play to it um that uh that nissa i think is one of the the best planeswalker designs of all time i think that's a, a fully great, agree yeah. I, I don't know if you can do the same thing again maybe it's like a one-trick pony but uh just for what it is i think it's uh it's perfect it's, it's certainly been the most fun and kind of like rewarding ones to play with in my opinion just like the way that the two abilities tie together the way that it works with top of the library manipulation and there's i feel a lot of planeswalkers are more like of a blunt tool in terms of how you use them you kind of know what you're going to do with it uh each turn and then this one requires some more finesse to it that I find really rewarding. Yeah, uh, and it, to me, it's so much more fun to play both with and against than like the the Gideon allies and the cars of the world, right? Where you just spam the battlefield, and if they don't answer it, they just die. And that's you can have interesting decisions, but I think those debates get obscured because what happens is those cards are so good that they crowd out a lot of interesting decisions that could have happened instead. So this came up in standard where there was a lot of back and forth positioning around Gideon, especially in Gideon Mirrors. And okay, that was a fun sub game to solve some of the time. Mm -hmm. But any deck that just couldn't answer Gideon, and this was in an era where uh, Planeswalker removal uh, was uh, deliberately minimized, um, there were so many decks that just never got their day in the sun because they would die to Gideon. And so, you know, if those decks had been present in the ecosystem instead, or as well, um, those could have led to interesting games too, but these are the ones that never get to exist because of the, the constraints in the format. Yeah. Um, speaking of planeswalkers that protect themselves, the new Grixis planeswalker, Formata walker, Gaeadrone Dihada, uh, pretty much from, from my seat is printed to be like as miserable as possible to play against if you don't have one of those planeswalker removal spells yeah i i do like it insofar as if you have a hero's downfall or something then what does it accomplish 
Um, mm. You have a bunch of stuff with counters on it, but it hasn't made a bunch of tokens. It hasn't drawn you any cards or anything. So I think it's fine from that angle. And I do like that you can immediately swing a game by turning a creature, turning a planeswalker even, against its owner. Um, I think threatens are often a, a great way to add that kind of uh, dynamic quality to a game. Um, so I actually, I think I'm warmer on this one than it sounds like you are. Yeah, I just, I, I imagine like facing it down is like, I don't know, some other deck where you have, you have two creatures on the board, they corruption your strongest one, and then maybe you can like take this one down to two or three loyalty, and then they corruption you again, and that you just can't ever kind of like turn the corner on getting this off the board. And I, I expect that play pattern when it does work to be um pretty unsatisfying to play against and i i don't expect this to like break constructed or anything i just think um you know my my cube environment is much looser to the point and has much fewer cards that actually say destroy target planeswalker that um when this can't be answered i i think it might be quite uh i don't know i just i don't want to face it and i don't feel like i would get a lot of joy out of using it either mm-hmm. um, going uh back down the list um a card that i am uh i think is brilliant design is kaleidoscorch um the name the intersection of the mechanics so it does uh x damage to any target where x is the number of mana spent on it that's a two mana red sorcery with a five mana flashback so potentially on the flashback you can do five damage to anything i i saw this card and i thought of you i thought this was uh if, if ever there was a card for eldrazi domain then, then this is it and uh yeah just a sweet design on the whole um I think if you push four color, five color, then the rate on this is pretty good. But um, otherwise, you know, two mana up front, I think there is a big difference between two mana and three mana. And mm-hmm. we mentioned before that cards like Volcanic Hammer or Fire Ambush are just not that inspiring at all. Um, so one thing I have noticed in trying to find like more interesting red burn spells or removal spells is so many of them do only two damage. So like Magma Jet, Blast from the Past, Firebolt, um, some of the the sweepers you can play, they're kind of capped at two or you have to work a lot harder to to go above that. Um, Mm. So being aware of how good is two mana for two damage in my format, that's going to be the big question, more so than anything about the card itself. And that, yeah, that ties in beautifully to uh, Flame Tank Yearling, where if you can expect to play this, and kill something useful, then this card is fantastic. But if uh, you're facing down a bunch of three toughness creatures and you have to jump up to four, there's a lot of stuff I can do for four mana. And uh, a lot of it is more impressive than this. So, uh, you know, stuff like that is is good to keep in mind. Are we are we done with Flame Tongue Kavu? I've seen a lot of people saying that. Yeah. Uh, it's just the fact that Kavu is conditional in the sense that it needs to have something it can shoot or else it has to shoot itself uh 
that does hold it back because it means you can't play it out on an empty board after a sweeper. Um, and th- this has inherited that clause as a as a true throwback to to Flame mm-hmm. Dunkavu, uh, which is cool from a flavor standpoint, but does inhibit its its gameplay a bit. Um, but yeah, it's if you're just jamming whatever the new threats are, it is tough to justify Flame Dunkavu in a world of you know. Chandra Torture Defiance, Hazaret, Pia and Kiran Nalar, uh, Hellrider. I, there are so many to list that, uh, mm. um, that, that that's the problem, basically. It's that you can get stuff that kills a creature much more easily than you can the uh, four-mana threat that takes over the game, you know, Rekindling Phoenix, so on and so forth, uh, by itself. Yeah, I guess what I like about this design is that um, I've found that in cube at least, cards that can slot in at uh, different points in your curve are like extremely helpful in just like making sure that you don't fall behind in the early game because you can um, probably a big predictor of win percentage in any magic format. Maybe not all of them, but it's just like how much mana you spend in your first three, four turns. And if you can kind of like find a way to sequence more efficiently, that just gives you that added benefit. By the way, if you're concerned about uh, one mana, two ones of any description being too powerful, this is a good way to clown on cards like that, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Even if your opponent curves out perfectly, you shoot down one thing and then you can trade for another. That really helps to drag you uh, out of the mid game. And um, you know, one uh, comparison for Ragavan that isn't quite exact, but like, do you remember when Kithian was spoiled and people just kind of lost their minds, or some of them did over that card? And yeah. certainly at that point, that was the best Savannah Lions elite vanguard that we'd ever seen. And I still love that card. I still try and put it in a lot of cubes, but it's it's a lot harder to run away with the game with that card than it might seem at first glance. And that's mm-hmm. just an inherent limitation of uh, bad stats in a more objective sense um, in a format where they quickly get outmoded. I do think that um, cycle of flipwalkers is one of my favorite sets of design. I, I know that we, like in the Strixhaven review, went on a whole rant about these wordy two-faced cards and those are certainly i guess because you you only really have to care about the front side of them and then uh to me i often find myself kind of like rediscovering what the back side of the card is when it flips or when it's about to flip that it, it kind of reduces that mental overhead that you have to have when you're thinking about the card because you can only play it down to the table on one side of them um but i think the only one of that cycle i don't run is probably the red one and we are talking about red cards the red evoke elemental is now fully released uh fury is a five mana double strike three three and when it enters the battlefield, it deals four damage divided as you choose among any number of target creatures and plank and or planeswalkers. And I don't know why I really like this card. Okay. Uh, how do you feel about it? 
I think it's an incredible card. And I think this one actually might gain the most from in a cube context, as opposed to constructed, for example, where, mm -hmm. you know, in cube, most of your opponent's decks are going to have creatures of some description. Um, the difference between sorcery and instant for something like pyrokinesis, for example, um, is less important there, I think. And then being able to hit planeswalkers, uh, depending on how stocked your cube is with those, is, is a really big deal. So uh, also, as the game goes along, you are much happier to just hard cast this one than you are to cast any of the others, basically, I think. I like Solitude is fine and, and so on, but th mm. this one is just, once you get to five, this is a really, really good flame time card, right? Yeah. Um, speaking of throwbacks, so we had the the Kavu throwback, and now we have uh, Turok as a legendary creature. Um, I'm not sure what to make of this thing. I mean, random discard is always very strong and uh, now you get random discard attached to what is in many cases a 4-3 creature um is this a card we want in our cubes is this something that i i know i ran him to turok uh for a long time uh back when i was really trying to like emulate legacy play patterns in my cube back when I ran a lot of Wasteland and that sort of thing. Lately, I've been kind of cutting back on these cards that are potentially feel bad for the opponent. Maybe too much? I don't know. What are your thoughts? So with Hintatorak, the, the main feel bad, I find, is they play it on turn two, you lose your second land, and the game is effectively over on the spot, right? And this card costing for mana, once you get up to the him effect, is a good way to uh, guard against that. Uh, I, I do have a soft spot in my heart for Risefall, which is a real heater, but because it's a gold card, you know, there's a much stronger competition for those slots and it goes in fewer decks and so on. But I think that's mm -hmm. a good implementation of the, the Hindator effect at that price point. But once you get up to four, I think this is clearly an excellent card, but I think one that's it's not uh, feel bad in the same way that Hintatorak is for the most part. No, but it's still like kind of right away a three for one. Uh, oh, it, it's, it might feel bad to lose to in the sense that this card is incredibly powerful, but it's not the, oh, my opponent rolled a d6 and hit the six and now the game is over in, mm. in quite the same way. Yeah. Um... I I find so so if you want to cast this, it'll be with the kicker. It'll be triple black and a colorless. Uh, I feel like there's a lot more cards certainly in my cube that are heavy on black pips than are heavy on any other color pips. Um, and I haven't really thought about it before. I I don't know what the repercussions of that are in terms of the design and the drafting dynamics. Certainly, I've seen uh, some people pump out some very capable mono-black decks recently. Uh, when mono-color, other-color decks don't really get played at all in my cube. Um, I don't... Yeah, I, I think 
I think you can lean into that. You can say, look, many of the good black cards demand a heavy black commitment, which is kind of quite flavorful for, for black. Um, so whether it's uh, black pips or uh, some of them want specifically swamps or whatever it is, uh, that's the that's the price that you pay. That's the the deal with the devil that you make to to get some of these these bangers uh, in black. And I think that you know what you don't want to do is I'm going to put the most powerful cards with other constraints in every color. So here are the good white cards. Here are the good blue cards. Here are the good black cards. And then you accidentally end up in a spot where the good blue cards go in any blue deck or can be splashed in other colors. And so those show up really often. But then the good black cards are all so exclusive to this one mono black deck that's off in its own corner somewhere and mm. never really show up elsewhere. Um, so you can also try and make these more accessible with stuff like the, the filter lands. So maybe you switch up your mana fixing to the point where you don't have five 10 card cycles, let's say. Um, you know, you you carve out some of the the black ones for Twilight Maya, Fetid Heath, Graven Cairns, um, as opposed to maybe Blue White doesn't want Mystigate as much, for example. Um, yeah. So there's stuff you can do to to make it accessible. Or uh, I, I did think the other day of what if Urborg, like the the land where we get the the green version reskinned in the set. Mm-hmm. What if you just make Urborg a build around card in its own right? So you have a lot of uh, double black, even triple black cards. You have cards that care about your swamp count. And at that point, you run into issues where like, if you don't have the Urborg, then everything gets powered down a bit. But um, I think there's stuff you can do in that space. Yeah, I guess my worry there would be on the replay value a little bit because I I do like the mono black decks when they pop up, but often I've, you know, there, there's only so little variation you'll get in the mono color deck building within a set. Um, now you do bring up Urborg, which enables you to go heavy on a color while being multicolor. Uh, I, I guess that that leans into some issues of it being likely a one of in your deck, and how do you actually build around it in that sense? But so one. Uh design space that I decided to dive into last night, in fact, was the the jumpstart cube idea, um, where you have a bunch of these uh, smaller decks, let's say 20 cards that come in these packages, mm-hmm. and then you can mash two of those together to make a 40 card deck, three of them together to make a 60 card deck. Um, and so you could guarantee, you could have like a black devotion or a heavy black uh, deck where you have the herbal in that deck the whole time, and you have enough... Uh, black centric fixing or you, you go in with the expectation that uh i'm going to be heavy and black and then maybe your selection of the other deck by whatever mechanism you have for that takes that into account or forces you to make a choice there um so I, there's a ton you can do over there as well and that, that might honestly like this is the literal worst time for me to be having that idea because we just have the modern horizons 2 spoiler so any task of like renovating my main cube now is getting completely derailed by this uh, jumpstart cube fantasy. But, so yeah, in so this guess. idea, the the like twenty card half decks are all pre constructed, and you just yeah. Um. All right. I I I don't know if this makes me a massive hypocrite. Um. Would you call that a cube? Oh no! Not not this again. Uh. 
it's a cube in the same way that everything is cake, right? Like if you call it a cube, then, then it's a cube. Um, I wouldn't call it a cube in the same way. It's, I see, this is what really rankled me uh, when as a young tot, I first made my way onto Salvation. And one of the first threads that I saw was, uh, is this a cube or is this a curated play experience? Well, that's not a phrase that anyone has ever uttered in their life before, but we need something to contrast a cube with. So that's that's what we came up with. Um, and I just don't, I don't see the point in those arguments. Like, call it what you want. Uh, I'm not going to run anyone off the forums for, oh, this is this is a space to discuss cube and you're discussing your curated play experience here. And that's very, uh, that's terrible manners of you. Like, just just talk about it. It's, it's a fun thought experiment to think about. So don't, of all the things we could discuss, why does that need to be, the royal we here, not you and me, not calling yeah. you out for posing the question, but it's just like, any debate like that about terminology just exhausts me at this point. Just don't don't have time for it. Uh, speaking of the forums, we at Riptide Lab hit a milestone this week of a hundred thousand lifetime posts, and in celebration, Kerblinks, one of our administrators, scraped all the posts to see uh, compile a list of the most liked posts of all time, and you, Dom Harvey, came in at number one by a country mile. I, I will say in my not defense, I guess offense, that doesn't suggest anything about the quality of my other posts. I might just have like one magnum opus and then all the rest are just kind of white noise that you have to sift through. Also, I don't know how many of those 100,000 posts are the bots who come in periodically to try and sell us, uh, you know, Viagra, uh, investment opportunities, whatever their newest uh, grift is. Um, but of the posts made by real authentic uh, humans, uh, yeah, it's uh, good to be king, Jason. Nice to be on top. Yeah, I, I will say those um, do not count uh, towards the post count because if I look at this post currently, it's post 103,000 something. So there have been about 3,000 Viagra ads that we have deleted from our site over the years. Mm -hmm. So you are welcome. Um, what if I needed that Viagra, Jason? And now I just have no idea where to access it. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure someone will drop a link in the YouTube comments to help Dom out. <laughs> Whether or not they even knew they were being asked to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, moving on to a... a I was trying to make an inappropriate... Um, inappropriate comment with timeless or eternal... Okay. It's a white dragon with eternal eyes. Um, they have... I mean, eternal dragon was not really on my cube radar for a long time. Uh, this new dragon looks quite pushed to me. Yeah, I, I adore this card, and it's... A little odd to see it in Modern Horizons, where I, I think this card will not really show up in Modern, um, but this is the only kind of set where you would expect to see something like this, so I'm glad that we get it uh, by whatever means. And Eternal Dragon, for me, was always one of those litmus tests. It was one of those fan favorites from the that mid-2000s era, which has maybe not aged so gracefully, but I always feel sad when I'm cramming the hot new thing in my cube that 
stuff like Eternal Dragon or you know, Genesis would be another good example. Stuff like that is getting pushed out over time. And to me, that, that's a good, another good elevator pitch for a cube. If you have to summarize it in one sentence, it's how good is Eternal Dragon in this format? Um, and now we have an Eternal Dragon, which I think can be good in many more formats if you want it to be. Yeah, I mean, this is a a great way to curve out. It kind of curves out into itself, into this um, Khaleesi zombie dragon thing. And if you do hard cast it, uh, it's, it's a lot of flying power that the opponent has to kind of get off the board if they are trying to remove this threat entirely in the sense that you can take out their 5-5 five five and the next turn they're coming back with a 4-4. Four four. Yeah, I think that uh, so often you cycle your Eternal Dragon and then it has the theoretical promise that in eight turns from now you can pick it up and then the turn after that you can play it again. But how often does that really come up in practice? Uh, whereas with this card, you can use every part of the buffalo more often. And mm. you do have to think, you know, can I, do I want to staple this two plus four together? Or uh, are my other turns spoken for? And I just want to play this as a five, five flyer on turn five, which is, you know, not the best rate by modern standards, but still okay. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this, this card still gives you choices, but because of how those choices are costed, you get to make them more often. And so I think this is probably a better design on the whole. Yeah. Now that we've seen this next card, I'm kind of surprised it didn't show up sooner. Uh, Ignoble Hierarch. It's Noble Hierarch, but Jund. And we all know how that plays, kind of, right? Yeah, I, I love having this card. I've seen some pushback on this being just like a carbon copy that's color shifted and why does this have exalted when that was the band mechanic in that set and maybe that's just the shards world building not resonating with me very much but i never saw exalted as an exclusively band mechanic and we have already seen exalted come back in m13 with like night of infamy and so on mm -hmm. um and that's what you need for this card to be good. That's that's why Noble Hierarch was so good, as opposed to Avacyn's Pilgrim and so on. It's not just the the fixing, it's the fact that the Exalted comes up so much more than you would think. And in in the Jun colors, like let's say you have a red-green aggro deck, I think that deck probably is better placed to make use of the that Exalted bonus a lot of the time. Um, you've got some red thing that really wants to attack, like Ragavan, perhaps, for example. And now this makes it a lot easier to connect with that. So, um, yeah, love this card. Home run for me. And uh, I, I think I will start building green sections where maybe there are multiple copies of Noble Hierarch, multiple copies of Ignoble Hierarch. And then, you know, if you're mono green, you just play them all at once and that's fine. Uh, if you are drunk, you get this one. If you're banned, you get the other one. So I uh, love having this, this option for sure. Yeah. Uh, next up, we have some artifact stuff. Uh, these, to me, I've seen a lot of people on our forums excited about. I I feel like Esper Sentinel is one of those cards where um, I don't get a lot of joy 
out of playing with it, but playing against it just feels kind of like annoying. Like maybe this is sometimes a fun puzzle to solve, but this is the type of card that doesn't, to me, have too much appeal. Yeah, this one doesn't get me going. Uh, even the more innocuous uh, artifact creatures in the set, like the, the Arcbound Mouser or Javelineers or whatever, those stand out to me more than this one does. This is, you know, it may pop up somewhere. I think it's worse at a glance than most people seem to think it is, but, you know, I, that's enough said on it for me. Yeah. Um, so Ravenous Squirrel, I mentioned in my Eldrazi Domain uh, video as a card that fits the design perfectly there. I I am interested to see how uh, it stacks up in my main cube because normally when I have a sack outlet that I'm looking for, I, I don't really want a mana cost attached to that activated ability. And, and certainly this tries to make it worth your while with the card draw and this can grow um, with other sack outlets sacking things and it also crucially doesn't have that cannot block line of text that seemingly every creature in the aristocrats deck uh, usually comes with yeah and I think nowadays you are just not going to get new sacrifice outlets that don't have a mana cost associated with it they understand that that's not a uh, design space they can really operate in. Um, so with that in mind, I think this is the kind of thing you can expect. And I love this for what it is because so often in the sacrifice decks, you want a certain density of sacrifice outlets, but then those end up competing with each other and have diminishing returns where let's say I have a carrion feeder and a viscerous here. Well, I can only sacrifice a creature to one of those two cards um, to get the effect. Whereas with this, I can move all in on the carrion, uh, carrion feeder or all in on the Vestris here and also balloon my Ravnus Squirrel into, you know, gigantic proportions at the same time. Mm -hmm. Now, there was a discussion on madness and uh, the comment that I think Land of Mordor made is that a lot of the madness cards over the years um, are so kind of atrocious on their hard cast side just in terms of like the efficiency you get per mana spent that it almost feels like a requirement to um have the madness as a way to play it and certainly if you build a constructed deck that's uh pretty easy to ensure but uh from a cube perspective this doesn't really a lot of these cards don't pass the like good stuff with hooks uh, qualifier that I'm looking for and that like they're they're not very playable without a lot of explicit synergy behind them and if you have too many of these madness cards you start to get um, I don't know either cards that are very dead to most drafters or like only there for one specific deck it doesn't really give the kind of gluey feeling that I would like from my archetype design. Yeah, I don't even know if it's that easy and constructed, especially for modern. And that to me is one of the big misses of this set because 
whenever you look at a new set, usually there's a, a 10 different archetypes, one for each color pair, and you understand that's meant to ground the limited format first and foremost, and maybe uh, the, the signpost uncommon or something can seek into constructed, or there's a rare in uh, one of those archetypes that ends up being good. But for the most part, you know, you don't expect all of those ahead. What's weird about Madness is they explicitly said, we thought Madness, uh, we wanted that to compete in modern and we thought it was a few cards away. And so we wanted to push that in this set. And as far as I can tell, they didn't. Like we have uh, Asmirano, Monica, Dastina, Koldika, of course, and the cookbook. <laughs> but we we don't have the the cheap enabler that you really need to make that fire in all cylinders. We don't have, uh, we have like a two mana putrid but one mana versus two is a world of difference in modern, let me tell you. Um, we have uh, like the the Rakdos headliner, the mm -hmm. three three haste for two, which has echo discard a card. That's a fantastic card, but it's not the thing which is going to bring me into a madness deck. And but because it's almost worse in that role because it's discarding one thing. Um, so if I draw my madness card two turns after I pay the echo on this, then it's useless. And also, this is so good by itself that it just gets them dead before I have time to mess around with any cool madness nonsense um so that that is i think this set is a miss for madness from a competitive standpoint and certainly looting being in jail doesn't help that either um but from uh, a cube design perspective too madness uh you end up needing it's like the reanimator problem you need the the discount outlet you need the the madness cards and then you need to have all of those in the right mix and you need all of that to be worth a squeeze uh, as opposed to just doing a, a normal game plan. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you think about a card like, uh, you know, the one we have here, uh, the Terminate, Terminal Agony. Um, so this is two black red destroy target creature and it has madness for black red. So this is a great removal spell, um, you know, Terminate Plus, if you have a banner outlet. And it's a four mana removal spell if you don't. So if your format is slow enough to the point where four mana destroy target creature as a sorcery is, maybe you're not happy about it, but you'll play it, then okay, you, you can start having that discussion. Anything that gets more efficient than that though, it's just, it's so unreliable. You, you just can't, um, you, you can't go in on that. And the problem that I mentioned or that you mentioned with a uh, Ravenous Scroll, where you know, so you, you need a certain amount of sacrifice outlets in your sacrifice deck, but then they can't all sacrifice the same thing at the same time. That problem is even more extreme with Madness, where just cards in your hand is a finite resource for the most part. And yeah. uh, you, if you dump your whole hand into one Madness thing, then top decking the next Madness thing, it, it gets so much worse. So you can find tie-ins with like Hellbent and uh, other mechanics and so on. But for the most part, I think madness as a theme is is a big trap and what you want instead is enough like interlocking graveyard synergies that just discarding cards and then getting them back later is is the payoff there so i think that uh you know if you want a medium high power madness theme in black red croxer is by far the best payoff for that not anything that actually has the word madness on it mm -hmm. I just had the thought, because I remember back in the day, I played some sort of madness deck in Popper, and 
certainly someone like Kerblinks, who's a popper grinder, will see this set through a completely different lens than I do. And I'm I'm wondering if those kind of low population constructed formats like factor into Wizards card design at all? Do you think poppers ever on their radar when they're making these cards? I, I know that it isn't, and because a lot of people have asked about Shadowstorm from this set. Uh, this is the one in a green, uh, you make a scroll token uh, with Storm. And people are a little concerned about that one because Storm has been broken time and time again in Pauper to the point where you look at the ban list and it's some of the usual suspects and then like five or six different Storm cards. Um, and so, you know, naturally people are worried about this. And the response basically is, we're going to see how it goes, and we will act fast to to nix it if it proves to be too good. Uh, we don't we don't want to let it rot around. But the thing there is that pauper is ultimately an artificial format. It's uh, using rarity as its constraint, as opposed to uh, release date or anything else. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of hard to design with pauper in mind outside of like the commander sets or the sets where they are legal in the format. But um, you know. For the most part, if you're looking at those sets from a commander standpoint, it's going to be with what's the new legend? What what are the, some of the flashy rares that have some big impact in multiplayer? And you can sneak in some card that's aimed at pauper in there um, to good effect. So one example of where this went wrong was uh, the the monarch mechanic, where that gets introduced in conspiracy, right? Mm-hmm. Conspiracy two maybe, and that's intended for games of multiplayer, whether it's in that draft format or in EDH, uh, Commander, excuse me. Um, and you don't think, oh, this is going to wreck Pauper, but that's what it ends up doing. And then in Commander Legends, we get a whole new cycle of uh, Monarch cards, including Fall from Favor. So this is the, the two in a blue, when it enters the battlefield, uh, you become the Monarch, you tap a creature, it doesn't untap while you're the Monarch, and then the Monarch mechanic itself is if you have the Monarch, you draw a card at the end of uh, each of your turns. Um, and these blue tempo decks were already incredibly strong in Pauper, and these just pushed them way over the line. And so right. that card got banned pretty much instantly. Um, but that's kind of what you have to do with Pauper, unless you're just not going to print appealing commons and uncommons at all, or commons, I suppose. Yeah. It's... At the start of that rant, you you mentioned EDH, and there was a comment on Reddit that made me literally laugh out loud. And maybe it it shouldn't have, but it, it was discussing Ornithopter of Paradise. It was the uh, top comment on <laughs> yeah. the thread, and it said, "Well, it is a common. It is sort of like Cold Steel Heart, but it's easy to remove and taps for any color." Also, it can chump block in a pinch and hold equipment. Might see play in EDH. And that to <laughs> me was just like such a perfect punchline. And the thing that actually like upsets me is that the discussion thread like went and started really like breaking down this comment. And if you go back to that thread, like I did when I went back and tried to screenshot it, the author had to edit it to say, we'll probably see play in EDH. And I had to like edit the HTML to like rewrite his message so that I could reconstruct my screenshot. Um, 
I, I thought where you were going with this was this is the laziest callback you could possibly have, right? Oh, it's an ornithopter and it has for any color of manner. So, so guess what? It's an ornithopter of paradise. And that that's the kind of name that when they do the design columns, um, that's the kind of uh, filler name that they put in there because we have to call it something internally and surely the creative team will come up with a natural name for it at some point. And then with so many cards in the set, they just didn't really do that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's just kind of leaving that one on the table. Um, but it's this is a, a rant for another time maybe, but I, I kind of feel like EDH has ruined the just like the spoiler discourse during preview season now. And people don't seem to build decks anymore. So whenever you see a new card spoiled, if you go to the top responses, it's always, oh, let's say it's a, an artifact creature like this one. It's, mm -hmm. oh, Urza loves this or laughs in Emery or something. And it is always identical phrases. There's not even any originality to the language. And you never see these discussions of, uh, oh, this is kind of an interesting tool. How do I build a casual deck around this? Or what's some weird card from back in the day that might, you know, juice this one up? It's always just pattern matching. It's, this is an artifact creature, and I have an EDH deck where the general cares about artifact creatures. So you 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 put two and two together. There, there's no, there, there doesn't seem to be any larger thought process going on here. There's none of that. Um, and this is just me going fully like old man, yells at clouds deep in the paint here but like back in the day um it, it felt like you would see a new card and you weren't quite sure what to do with it and then that question would lead you down a rabbit hole to find that thing and now you just know what that thing is because there's guaranteed to be some commander deck where this goes in the 99 and that's just that's it there's no no more thought required there yeah but there's there's other contexts, like we 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 shouldn't like judge the entirety of like magic discourse by filtered Reddit comments. Well, thank God for that, because you know, but I, I, other than the ones that are praising me, um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it's just a yeah, just an observation, I suppose. I thought you would be annoyed by Chef's Kiss, which is like them just kind of tapping in on a modern meme because in, in one of our earlier episodes you were you were talking about kind of this style of design that takes you out of the kind of flavor and theming of what you expect magic to be and i don't know what this card text has to do with this art or name or anything but they made the name and you can put it with your discord emoji and now we have it yeah there are a lot of designs in the set where it's just top down based on wordplay or or a pun or something and I, I don't mind that as long as the card itself is fully functional and i find the ornithopter of paradise concept more offensive from that standpoint i guess yeah i guess I mean, you were just like a big fan of like the most predictable custom card wordplay card ever in ignoble hierarchy. Like you, you knew if they were gonna print this effect, what the name of it would be. And I, I, 
does this count as wordplay? I mean, but okay. So in in that case, the word ignoble is just so kind of weird, right? Like that's that's not a word that's in common parlance. Um, no. So it's nice to have that one smuggled in, uh, and also you know it's a goblin who looks kind of funky instead of a uh, a human. So we're mixing mixing that part up. Um, I think that that like reskinning of a card is is fine as opposed to and this is it's always somewhat arbitrary these aesthetic preferences right mm. but like um some of the more explicit top down designs i know i've ranted about a crow and horse before but it's like like we okay we get it you're, you're very clever you've you've read your thucydides or god knows what uh but it's just to me it's if it's within the same kind of magic universe that's fine but then when it's literally just a plus b is this is an ornithopter this is a birds of paradise this is an ornithopter paradise that what what is meant to be the charm there exactly yeah um i went back and looked at the list of cards that you um seem to be excited about that you sent me before our first uh modern horizons 2 podcast and Correct me if I'm wrong, this was on your list, right? Calibrated Blast? Yeah. Um, so this is a three mana red instant where you reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a non-land card, and then you deal damage equal to the mana value of this card to any target, and it has flashback for five mana. And uh, certainly they've had cards that do random damage in this way before but maybe not to this efficiency what what is it about this card that was drawing you to it i think it's good enough at what it does that you can trick yourself into doing that thing now like erratic explosion was always just so hit or miss uh riddle of lightning just cost way too much um this is kind of the best parts of both and it's good enough that you can, let, let's say in your cube, where um, if you have a bunch of these top of library effects, a bunch of brainstorms, but you also have some high cost stuff to work towards, whether it's like commit to memory, just you, you add the four to the six and you're just blasting them for 10, or I don't know, greater Gargadon, and recall the promise end. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of ways to aim high with this almost by accident, and I, I just love that. Um, and so, yeah, I, you can't really build a cube around this, um, and there's not much redundancy on this effect that's good, unless you want to run multiple copies of Calibrated Blast, um, but just as a unique one-off build around, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's certainly something you can shove in as like a splash card in your blue-black build with Delve creature deck, um, which are things with like artificially high mana value, even though they're not really that expensive when you actually cast them. Um, yeah, I think th there's some more cards, but I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't really feel like we need to dissect any more of them. Do you have any kind of like closing thoughts on this set as a whole, either from cube or constructed perspective? I would say that uh, the same issue I had with Madness also applies to the some of the other themes in the set so 
you in blue black for example that's meant to pay you off for discarding cards um which mm. there's a lot of overlap there with madness but it's uh there's like the blue black uh two drop where when when you just got a card you can pay one and a mass two that's that's pretty cool um but beyond that it seems like that theme just didn't show up at all and likewise I was so excited to hear that uh, Delirium was coming back and in a new color pair in, in blue-red. And you can look through the spoiler and not really notice that that's even a thing. Like, it shows up on this rare, which is not even a, a good rare as far as I can tell, um, for the most part. You've got the Uncommon, the, the Channeler, which I think will be very good in you know, Legacy, maybe, but, mm-hmm. but that's kind of it. But where is, where's the really cool like del- uh, rare with Delirium? right, in one of these colors, or both of them, right? It, it's just not a theme that has really showed up. And then that carries over to some of the other themes too, like uh, green-white is meant to be plus one, plus one counters. And I, I love me a hardened scales. I was really excited to see what I could pick up from this set. But all the relevant stuff there seems to be in another color pairs mechanic, which is modular. Um, so mm. that's a cool space to explore, but that also is it has its own requirements to it. Um, so from a Q perspective and constructed as well, I guess, um, a lot of the, the big hits seem to be cards, which kind of could be in any other set, if you were willing to loosen the boundaries a bit, as opposed to here are the themes of the set and here are cards that really push that theme to the extreme. Yeah, I, I guess I, I don't know what kind of cards I would be looking for to like really be drawn into delirium as a mechanic or that would make me want to build around it. But I don't, I don't feel like I've found them in the set. Yeah, uh, Someone did upload a thread to the forum just now of, uh, you know, delirium in light of modern horizons too. And frankly, you could have posted that thread at any time in the past few years just because you really didn't pick anything up from this set, unfortunately. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that wraps up our two-part review of Modern Horizons 2. I I think uh, if you want to stay tuned after the credits, we'll have a a little mini rant from Dom from before we went live uh, about... I don't even know what it was about anymore. Um, But you can stick around for that. And as always, or as not always, but as recently, we are on a variety of platforms for you to listen to. We are now on iTunes. We are on Spotify. And from what I've seen, people have started doing that right away. So you are in people's pockets now, Dom. Beautiful. All right. Thank you all for listening and have a nice day. Bye. I read your article on grief on Star City Games and the grief ephemerate turn one looks yeah, like nothing I, I ever want to be a part of. Well, bear in mind, that was... Uh... You know, day one of spoilers, basically, when grief was the the big headliner there, and I managed yeah. to just snag that uh, before anyone else did. But since then, we've had the whole rest of that cycle. So you have the white member in solitude, which is such a natural pairing with ephemerate, and that just devastates any kind of uh, creature deck, basically. Yeah. Um,
and you know more tools that we get to use with our cycle in the set now so uh even scarier than i thought at first glance yeah i i do wonder how how constructed will change i actually don't even know what's like the current top dogs of the meta i assume that it's some degenerate stuff given by some of the hate cards that i saw printed in this set but well that, that's a that's a curious thing so modern just before uh this new set uh the top dog was uh Paris. so blue red Paris is kind of spell based aggressive deck uh and then the heliod combo deck with uh you know spike feeder walking ballista that was the the top dog just before then and has kind of been pushed out of the format a little bit uh, mm. but beneath that it was some of the usual suspects are nothing too egregious. But since uh, looting left the format, we have not really had any kind of powerful graveyard deck floating around. The one exception is Dredge, which did, uh, it, it looked like that was going to be terrifying again with a uh, thrilling discovery where you have mm -hmm. like eight cathartic reunions now. Um, but that hasn't really put up the numbers uh, since the first week. But yeah, it, it's weird. So lo looking at the set, yeah, you would think that we're living through Hogak Summer again, right? Or we're living through uh, some broken graveyard deck just tearing the format to pieces. And that's really not the case. And because of these hate cards, I don't think it can ever really be the case again. Yeah, I, I guess... Like, I, I feel like it's pretty clear that Wizards would at least, like, regret printing some of these dredge cards in terms of, like, the play mechanics and, like, the some of the games that it results in kind of look nothing like magic to me. And I, I guess they're just content to... I mean, they've been printing very strong graveyard hate cards for a long time, but I guess back when I paid attention to Modern, they were more like strong sideboard cards, and maybe now they're trying to print some strong main deckable cards. That's, that's the thing, yeah, because you've always had... Lay Down in the Void, Graphicus Cage, uh, Rest in Peace if you're a white deck, and so on. So the, the issue has never been that the sidewalk cards aren't there. The issue is that you get uh, annihilated in game one and then have to win both of the post-board games, and then often those turn into, did I draw my hate card or not? And then if I have my hate card, did they draw their answer to my hate card or not? And that's just not an interesting binary, however you slice it. Uh, so what you see... And I, I think what kicked this off was if you want to construct some kind of grand unified theory of magic design over the past few years, mm -hmm. is that with uh, Arena becoming one of the, or at this point, the predominant way to play magic, certainly under COVID, um, a lot of play on there is done under best of one. And so let's say you're pushing a graveyard theme in a new set, then you need cards which people can put in their main decks without feeling too bad about it, which are going to have some utility in that that one game, in that match that they're getting to play. Mm -hmm. uh, and so stuff like Nine of Autumn, for example, where you see a lot of these uh, naturalized disenchant effects just stapled onto cards that also do a bunch of other things uh, because you can play that card and it's going to do something against everyone, basically. And maybe it's not uh, incredible, but it's, you're not going to be unhappy to draw it most of the time. Or uh, in terms of more reactive stuff, there's uh, like Return to Nature, I think it is. And then there's the, the one in this set, which is uh, 
kind of disenchant, exile a card from a graveyard, and it also has uh, reinforce. So even if your you know your your white aggro deck uh, has no targets for any of those modes, you can still just use this as a combat trick sometimes. Uh, uh, yeah. So the break ties card. Yes. Yeah, that's it. Uh, so I think that is a good shift on the whole. It doesn't really carry over to this set because Modern Horizons only injecting yourself into modern as the the youngest format it's legal in means you don't have to worry about that for arena for example uh but these are uh safeguards put in place against any future graveyard deck being too ridiculous and, and you do have reanimator in this same set which may be dead on arrival because of all of these hate cards but mm -hmm. um let's say they had left faithless losing lying around if you keep just banning around looting, like let's say you you ban Golgari Graveshore and Creeping Chill or whatever, and then, okay, maybe Phoenix has been too good for too long, so you ban uh, Manamorphos, I, I, I don't know. Uh, eventually, some new graveyard deck is going to come along, where, all right, it's, <laughs> once again, looting is, uh, is causing problems. And so either you take the nuclear option and you just ban looting, get it out of the format, or you print these cards where you know, you have these heavy-duty responses to the pushed engine pieces in the format. And I think that that second camp is probably the, the better way to go. Um, and yeah, in terms of Dredge, I think if they could go back in time, they would really rein in what they did with that mechanic, where, okay, yeah, you can have Dark Blast, you can have Life in the Loam, you can have these interesting, maybe Dredge 2, Dredge 3 kind of cards, but Sinkly Dampan, Golgari Gravejaw can just get right out because yeah. uh, at, at that point, so often Golgari Gravejaw is is a blank piece of cardboard with Dredge Six on it. And and literally, if there was a card that just said Dredge Six, that would be a broken card. That would cause problems in all of the larger formats. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you reach that point where you're not even playing the card for the text on the card just because it has this weird zone-changing... Uh, ability, um, that's when you know that you've messed up somewhere. And so it would not surprise me totally if you wake up one day and those dredge cards have just been deleted from Constructed Magic, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think many people, even dredge players themselves, who kind of know what they've been getting themselves into, I, I don't know if they could really complain uh, all that much. Excuse me. Yeah, they've been on borrowed time for many years now.
but uh, technically well, the, we're not uh, even in the like official podcast yet. So I, I'll, I'll see if I can like work in your your rant on modern at the like end of this episode and the editing. Sure, sure. Well, the the funny thing is uh, the the graveyard hate cards that you see in the set are not even fast enough against dredge in vintage where you need your card to be often like exactly ley nine or something mm -hmm. that functions on the first turn. And even if you have that, you're going to lose a lot of games to uh, Hollow One and Force of Vigor. So more uh, free spells causing problems. And with this set, the Bizarre of Baghdad decks get juiced up even further, where now um, you have Master of Death. So that's the uh, blue and black squee that returns itself mm -hmm. uh, and Grief. So now you have this engine where you can just bizarre every turn to to net cards instead of going down cards and also you have this thing which you can pick it up to pitch to your your grief your force of will your force of negation your contagion you know all of the pitch spells in your deck you yeah. just get to do that kind of on demand now so uh that's kind of terrifying frankly but i mean everything in vintage is terrifying and if it isn't then you're playing the wrong format so uh 